tonight and all these past Wednesdays we've finally made our way through chapter 1 and Philippians 2 is a very famous uh, section of Philippians and the section we're going to cover tonight is the first five verses. If you look at verse number five that is probably where a lot of people go to in their mind when they think of Philippians chapter 2. Um, they think of verse number five, but the verses that lead up to it um, are really the, the commands and the pattern and the truth, and then verse five and following is the example. So we'll go through verse five, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll pick up with verse five and go much further into the example of Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 5 is the reading. Now, before we stand and read, I just want to point out that the, the joy that's talked about in verse 2 is really based on the content of the prior few verses there. And so I want to read verse 27 all the way down to verse number 5 just to refresh our minds. So um, why don't we all stand? I'll read all through those from verse 27 down to verse 5. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 is where we'll begin reading. Only let your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident sign of destruction, but to you of salvation and that of God. For to you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict that you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there is therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any heart and mercies, Fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or boastfulness, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we turn to you at this moment, and we ask that the truth of Philippians 2 would connect with our hearts, and may you, by your Holy Spirit, teach us and lead us in these moments. We want to fulfill the truth of these verses, and may we have the grace and the help from you to see clearly the ways that we do and do not live out these truths and may you um, lead us to full obedience and to walk after your heart and your mindset and to be filled with humility. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. In military strategy, I'm told that one of the tactics of generals and of armies is to do what is called divide and conquer. And one of the tactics, especially in, in prior times when large groups of men would all be hoarded up in large masses, some of the tactics is to go straight for the center, straight for the center, and if you can get the center to break, you can split that army into two groups, 
and because they're divided, they're not able to work together or to function together, and that's one of the tactics to overtake an army. Um, different battles have been lost by the center of the line breaking, and, um, and that's a common thing in military uh, terms. But in church terms and in Christian terms, Satan also seeks to divide the church. And he wants to divide and to conquer. And one of the ways that he does that is to get people to be at odds one with another, to be upset with each other, to be against one another. And, um, you know, we call the church the family of God, right? And sometimes I describe the family of God sometimes has family squabbles, right? But that is a, a tactic of Satan. And in this passage, we actually find Paul addressing probably the most urgent need in the church of Philippi, and it was this matter of unity. We talked about it last week and about their need to stand together. Do you remember that, that standing together and how it's important to be unified? And here he talks more about this unity, but he does it from a different angle. Here he starts talking about their mindset one to another. In the prior text, it was about how they were to unite for the purpose, for the cause, right? But here, he's addressing more their relationships one with another and the way they interact, the way they think, and the way they talk with each other. And so in these verses, what I find here are like building blocks for unity. And the building blocks for unity, it, it's sort of like, um, let's see here, it's sort of like Legos. Is there anyone here that's touched a Lego in the last year? All right. I can raise my hand. I've touched Legos. Um, sometimes in play, more often in cleanup, okay? But what you do with Legos is you take this piece, you take this piece, and you put them together, and you build something, right? And the more pieces you have, the nicer, better thing that you can build. And the, the uh, you know, I remember being a kid and seeing other people's Legos and being like, man, if I had those, I could build something really, really cool, right? I could have something amazing. But uh, when it came down to it, I always had to follow the book. I had very little imagination, so I would follow the book, and I would get it just the way it's supposed to be. But ingenuity, creativity was not my, um, you know, my extra gift from God. So, um, so having the book was very uh, important to me. But, you know, some, pe some kids, they could look at their Legos all disassembled, and then they could look at someone else's all put together, and they could be like, why can't I have as cool setup as they have, you know? Well, they have the same building blocks that they have. They have the same pieces that they have. They just haven't put it together, right? They haven't built the thing. And I think sometimes in, in Christianity, there are sometimes Christians that look at what someone else has and they'll be like, man, I wish I could have that, you know? They seem so fulfilled in their spiritual life or they seem to be growing or happy or whatever it is. Well, when it comes to unity, we all have the building blocks for unity. Every Christian has these building blocks at, at our fingertips. Um, God didn't bless some Christians with the gift of unity and then leave other Christians without that gift. That, that's not how he did it. He gave all the building blocks to all his children, and he said, here, you can be unified. And what I've entitled the message tonight is unity through humility, because unity and humility go together, and you'll see as we read and go through these verses that the humility is what brings about the unity. Now, what I'm going to get started with is actually verse 2 tonight, and verse 2 does not have its own point because verse 2 is the point, okay? Verse 2, he says, fulfill my joy 
that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It's almost like Paul goes out of his way to say the same thing as many different ways as he can in this passage. I mean, you have like-minded, one mind, lowliness of mind, um, one accord, same love. You have all these different ways of him trying to say you need to be unified. And when he starts out in verse 2, he says that you be like-minded. That like-mindedness that he's talking about, he literally, it says, think the same thing. Think the same thing. Now, he's not telling everyone to have identical thoughts, you know, precisely identical. But if you think of what he says following this, he says having the same love. You need to be like-minded having the same love. Quick question for us all here. Do you and I have the same love? Well, yes, we should. And to some degree we do, right? If you're a Christian, to some degree you love Jesus, right? But the Bible says that we need to be of one mind, and the way to do that is to have the same love. Hmm. So my question for you tonight is, what do you love the most? What is it that you love the most? We want to say, and we should say from the heart, that we love Jesus the most. In my Bible reading this week, I was going through 1 John. And you read through 1 John, and it's all about fellowship and love and all these things. And then you get to the very, very end of 1 John, and the last sentence of 1 John is, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you know what sometimes happens amongst Christians is you have some Christians that love the Lord first. And you have other Christians that have an idol. Now, do you think those two Christians can be like-minded? Not the way they're supposed to be. Not in fullness. Not as Paul is longing for this church and he says, I want you to be like-minded, having the same love. And a love of Jesus is something that can unify people like nothing else. When we love Jesus most, when we have a simple love of the Lord. He says, I want you to be like-minded, having the same love. And then he goes on to say, being of one accord, of one mind. Here is this thinking, um, thinking metaphor that we think the same way, that we have the same thinking. And again, sometimes the details will be different from one to the next, you know? You might like blue chairs more than gray chairs, okay? That's not a spiritual problem, all right? It's not. Some of you are glad to find that out. It's not a spiritual problem. Um, you know, we have preferences and the, these different other things. But here when he says to think the same thing or to be of one mind and to be of one accord, the idea is that our mindset is the same. Our mindset is the same. And part of that is, yes, loving Jesus, loving him first, loving him foremost, but then I think it also has to do with the truth of God's word, letting the scripture guide our thinking and thinking the truth of the scripture. And Paul looks to this church and he says to them, oh, I would be so happy. You would fill up my joy cup if I came and I realized and I found out that you all love Jesus together and you are all thinking together because your heart is set on him and your mind is set on the scriptures and you're unified together that, that would make me so full of joy if that's what I found when I came to Philippi. Now then the question is, well, how, how can we get there, right? 
Because sometimes we see the ideal, and we'd be like, man, boy, that looks nice. Well, how do we get there? What steps do we take? Well, that's where I see our different points here tonight. And I want to start off with a quick, uh, a quick explanation of what humility is not. Because we're going to be talking about humility in these other verses and how that undergirds these actions that we're talking about tonight. But sometimes there's some confusion on humility. And I want to quick talk about what it is not. Okay, Humility is not forgetting yourself. It's not neglecting yourself. Um, the Bible uses the phrase in another passage of Scripture, it says, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And so, uh, you know, forgetting you exist, um, not brushing your teeth, you know, not caring about your budget, right? These are not actions of humility, right? That is, uh, that's not what humility is about. So forgetting yourself, some people... Um, like, I've heard someone try to say humility is not uh, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Well, that's helpful depending on how much less you think of yourself, okay? Because we do exist, right? And we are to manage ourselves and think of ourselves in light of God. And so um, sometimes the idea of just not ever thinking of yourself as humility is, is taught, and I don't think that's the scriptural teaching. Self-loathing, self-hate, this is not humility. Um, depression, feeling bad. Uh, some people just are, are, are feeling bad and they say, I'm just humble. Well, that, that's not humility, okay? That's, that's something else. Um, being a doormat or accepting abuse, this is also not humility. Um, and so these are just a few, a quick picture of what humility is not, okay? So let's get going with verse 1 now. If I am to grow in humility, if I am to let this be a part of my life, how do I do this? How does this take place? Because, you know, just shouting, I must be humble, doesn't make me humble, right? Tying a string around my finger and remember to be humble today, right? That doesn't make myself humble. I think the first guide in this passage is in verse 1. Remember the gifts. Remember the gifts that you have in Christ. It says, if there is, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any heart and mercy. These ifs, there's four ifs right here. And Paul is trying to, to explain and maybe even argue to them by using these ifs. So he says, therefore, based on those prior verses, right, I want to come to you, I want my joy to be full when I see you, right, I want you united. Therefore, these four ifs. And he's not saying, um, he's not doubting them, like maybe you did, maybe you have these things, maybe you don't. Right? He's not coming at it with, with a true doubt in his heart towards them. Rather, he's using this as a basis for argument. And he's saying, hey, if, if you have this, if you have this, if you have this, if you have this, then you can do this. And he's arguing that they have some things that are theirs, that are the basis for humility. He says, first, consolation in Christ. This consolation speaks of comfort or encouragement. Now, he doesn't say if you have consolation in each other. He says if you have consolation in Christ. And this consolation, this comfort, or this encouragement, some even use the word cheering, but it's this idea that in Jesus, I have someone who comforts and encourages me. Do you know, sometimes people fight and argue because they feel like there's no one else to fight for them. There's no one else that they can trust. There's no one else that will pick them up if they get destroyed, so to speak. And so they feel like they're their own defense. 
But the Bible here says that we have consolation in Christ. In Jesus, I have someone who will comfort me, someone who will love me, someone who, who will encourage me. And so, therefore, if, if there's a problem with another Christian, I always have someone that I can run to, and his name is Jesus Christ. Christian, do you know that you need to take your pains and your problems that you have with other people, you need to take them to Jesus. You need to hold them in your hands and say, here it is, Jesus, this person, they're upset with me, or they hurt me, or they said this, or whatever it might be, and you need to take it to Jesus. And the Bible here says there is consolation in Christ. Has Jesus ever encouraged you? There's a one amen right there. Someone got encouragement in Jesus. I've been encouraged by Christ. I've been comforted by him. And Paul says, you know what? If you can be comforted in Christ, that is going to be a basis of something that's going to help your mind. It's going to help your thinking. It's going to help the way you interact with others. And so sometimes people think they have to attack others and they have to kind of fight back and bash because if they don't, that person's going to keep hurting them, right? They're going to keep saying that or they're going to keep doing whatever it might be. But if we've found that we have consolation in Christ, that means I have someone who can bear my burden with me. I have someone who can heal my pain. I have someone who will put his arm around me and say, John, it's going to be okay. And you can insert your own name in that little example there. So Paul says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, this is really broad. I mean, comfort of love. It kind of sounds similar to the, the same thing, right? The consolation, it's similar in idea to comfort. But he, he leaves it a little broader here. He says, comfort of love. And I think there's a whole lot that he's trying to say with this big, broad term. And he's saying, have you not experienced love? And he's laying this love as something that I think they've received, but something that they've given, something that's come down from the love of God, and they've received the love of man, and there's been the love of salvation and the love of spiritual growth. Love in a variety of places, but he says, haven't you tasted the comfort of love? Has anyone ever loved you? Yeah. Let's think about that for a minute. As they've loved you, did they, did maybe they show love to you when you were prickly to them? Hmm. When I did something dumb and said something stupid to them, they still loved? Yeah, I've had some experiences like that. I remember one time, I'm telling on myself here a little bit. Don't do this, okay? But I remember one time someone made a compliment to me about the house that I was living in. And they said it was nice. And I said, thank you or something. And then I proceeded to disparage a different type of housing, which unbeknownst to me, that person lived in. And you know, I didn't discover where they lived until later. And I thought to myself, they were so kind to me. They said nothing. They went about the evening. They loved me anyway. And you know what? I have a wonderful relationship with this person. They're not in the church, okay? You're all wrong. They, who was it? Who was it? Not in the church, okay? But in that moment, I, he just patiently and graciously loved me. When he had every right to say, you know what? You know, he could have lashed out right in that moment. And I deserved it. I deserved it wholeheartedly. But I've experienced the comfort of love because others have loved me in my weakness and my failures and my faults. And this is a, a, this is a, a basis for how I can live in humility 
as I remember the comfort of Jesus, and as I remember this comfort of love from God and from others, this is a basis for, for me to treat others with humility. And then he says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, this fellowship of the Spirit is this communion, this unity, this uh, oneness that comes about by the Holy Spirit. Now, the word fellowship was used back in chapter 1 in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. But the fellowship he talks about, he doesn't say any fellowship of the saints specifically, but he says the fellowship of the Spirit. And we understand this to be the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so we've experienced the love of Jesus. We've experienced love in general, perhaps from the saints. But now this fellowship of the Spirit. And I think what Paul's trying to remind them is that there had been times in the past where there was unity and there was fellowship and these believers were strengthened and helped by it. Have you had some times in church experience where you communed with people? Maybe you opened your heart to another believer. Maybe there was a time of fellowship where you came away and you said, I'm encouraged, I'm strengthened. God helped me through that time. And Paul is pointing back to these Philippians and he's saying, oh, haven't you experienced this fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Haven't you experienced the Holy Spirit knitting your heart together with another believer? Don't you remember that? Don't you, have you forgotten that sense of oneness and that sense of, of unity that you had? Have you forgotten that? If you've experienced this, then. And then lastly, he, he ends with, if any heart and mercies. And uh, the word heart here is the idea of the inner seat of emotions. And, and then he says mercies. And so in a way we could say, well, I mean, the heart, we usually think of love, right? But maybe in a broader sense, I think maybe he's saying if you have emotions and if you have mercies, mercies given, mercies received, if you've experienced these things, then be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. And then he goes on with his other commands that, that form this foundation. Maybe we could say it this way. The opposite of humility is pride. And to walk in pride is forgetfulness. It's forgetting the gifts that we have been given. And the gifts that I've been given in Christ are many, not few, many. And as I go back in my heart and my mind, and I remember the comfort that Jesus has given me, and I remember the love of the saints towards me, and I remember the unity and the fellowship that we had knit together in the Holy Spirit. And I remember how my heart and emotions were helped by other saints and how people were merciful to me. Then that memory serves as a foundation for my humility. Because it says, I've been given so many, many good gifts in Jesus. Can I not give these gifts back to others? Can't I be that person who listens when they need to pour out their heart? Can't I be the one who forgives when they wrong me because I have wronged them? And we see a, such a beautiful foundation in verse 1 that's, I don't know, we, we rush past verse 1 really quick to get to you know 4 and 5 and some of these more common verses, but, but Paul says you've experienced something. You know these things. And because you've had them and because you know them, let these things be a basis for why you walk in humility. 
this comfort of love, let me just return to that. Certainly love is kind of, love and humility go together really well, don't they? But I, I read a story years ago, and it I came back to my mind while I was studying through this and thinking about it. So I, I Googled it, I looked it up. And there's a story about um, these babies in orphanages in Russia and Romania and some of the Soviet bloc countries. And, you know, sometimes we don't think about the social ramifications of war, but World War I and World War II both brought about huge, huge levels of, of um, children without parents. Good night. What's the word? Orphans. All right. They, these, these children were orphaned and their fathers were killed and there's a lot of citizens killed, especially in World War II. Man, there was a lot of citizens killed as well. So, so literally, Russia and some of these you know, Eastern Bloc nations, they were dealing with millions of orphans. Can you imagine? Millions of orphans. I can't even fathom that. But they said they would, they would build these orphanages, and especially they did a really poor job after World War I. It seems like after World War II, they had a little better handle on some things in some places. But, but they would have these large orphanages where they would have hundreds of children with only a few workers, and they would have eight hours, and they would have all these babies in a room, and this worker would go along, and they would, you know, prop, prop up the, the bottles, and they would fill all the bottles, and then they'd prop up all the bottles, and, and then they would go by and change every diaper, and, and it's very systematic, very formulaic, and these children were not really picked up. If they were picked up, it was just for a moment to change them, and there was no personal comfort, there was no personal love, and all of our hearts are sad to hear these stories, but you mothers, I mean, you, I can see it on your faces right now, you sense the hurt of this, but these babies, they, they wouldn't grow, and they wouldn't grow to maturity, a lot of them had emotional problems, a lot of them, they said there was this one that was six years old, but he appeared to be a two-year-old, because he had not grown, and his body wasn't processing, and you know what they talked about? They said it was not nutritional lack. And it was not that they were abused. And it was not that they were not changed. But the problem was simply that no one loved them. We don't always consciously think about the power of love. But the reason we have any health in Jesus and the reason we're at where we are spiritually is because people have loved us. Because people have been patient with us. Because people have chosen to deal kindly with us time and time again. And that action has brought us to where we are. And so how can we go through our Christian life then with an arrogant, prideful spirit that forgets the gifts that have been given to us? These gifts are the foundation. They're the basis. They're the heart of why we should be humble. Because someone loved me when I didn't deserve it. Someone was patient with me when I didn't deserve it. When I was at my weakest, other people reached out to me in their grace. So Christian, can I ask you tonight, is there any consolation in Christ? Is there any comfort of love? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Is there any heart and mercy? I hope as a Christian you can say, yes, there is. There is. That is my story. That is in my history. These things are true, and they're not just true out there somewhere, but they are a part of my own history. Then what should that lead us to? A humble spirit, a humble attitude that gives the gifts that were given to us. Some of you are getting worried about the clock. Well, 
I think we're going to stop right there because verse 3, 4, and 5 kind of are their own sermons as well. I think there's much to meditate on in these verses, and maybe this week you can do some more meditating on these phrases. Paul wants them to be of one mind, of one heart. I think if we will remember the gifts, we'll have a great start to that in these days and in these weeks ahead of us. Let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll take any questions or comments. Dear Lord, we praise you and thank you for the gifts that have been given to us. And we want to be a humble people, and I pray that we would not forget the many gracious kindnesses that people have shown to us, and ultimately that is from you, your love, your patience, your comfort. And we ask, Lord, that we will remember these gifts and that we will recognize that we are unworthy recipients and that now it's our privilege to extend them to others. Help us, we pray. Bless us in our praying here and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well.